Lara Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and best-selling author of the books Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual, practical guides to treating period problems with nutrition, supplements, and bio-identical hormones. With a strong science background, Lara sits on several advisory boards and is the lead author on a couple of peer-reviewed papers. She has more than 20 years' experience in women's health and currently has consulting rooms in Christchurch, New Zealand, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and many other hormone and period-related health problems. On this episode, we discuss with Lara all things periods and perimenopause. We get the facts on what is perimenopause, the nine symptoms you need to know. Is midlife really from 37? And Lara talks about what is going on hormonally and how this affects our entire body system. We talk about dealing with heavy periods, supplementing our hormones, taking the contraceptive pill. We talk about dealing with stress. And does perimenopause actually affect our ability to cope the same as before? We talk about alcohol use and the real truth you need to know. And we talk all things sorting your sleep out, including dealing with night shifts. All this and so much more. I can't believe how much we packed in. So you know the drill. Pack up your bag for work, start the car or get out with the dog as your luggles are in for a treat in this episode of The Midwife's Cauldron. I'm Katie James, and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now, and hear us on your favorite podcast host. But just a sec, before we start on this epic episode, if you love the show and want more from Rachel and me, then head on over to our websites and check out all the courses, books, Collectives A Go-Go. You'll find all the details and occasional discount deals on the old Instagram at The Midwife's Cauldron or, of course, in the show notes below. And if you really, really love the show please consider two things, a single or a monthly donation over on Patreon or even buy me a coffee. And remember, that review you leave on your podcast host really makes a difference in who listens in. Thank you for your support. We just love having you bubbling away with us. Laura Bryden, welcome to The Cauldron. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with us this morning. Well, this evening for you. Yeah, we're in all different time zones. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. Oh, it's just a treat. We have been waiting a long time to bring you into The mm. Cauldron. So we tried a couple of times, didn't we? And then we, we have had to keep changing. Yeah. But we've made it. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. Yes. I'm looking at Rachel because I was like, Rachel's going to start with questions, but. <laughs> <laughs> nope, you're, you've this got, is how we roll. kind of questions drafted here, Lauren, and we never stick to them. <laughs> I thought you were the, I thought you were the red. Oh, am I the red? You're the red. <laughs> this is what happens when we're trying to be organised. <laughs> okay, you, you can cut that. Although Katie won't cut it, she'll leave it in to make me look bad. <laughs> right, so be, because today we're going to talk about perimenopause and menopause, I thought it would be important to start by defining the terms because it's not the same thing. No. And hormonally speaking, they're incredibly different. Mm -hmm. So perimenopause is the, for some of us, turbulent years leading up to the final period. Technically, perimenopause includes that one year after the final period until you achieve or graduate to menopause or postmenopause, depending on I've been in various debates, depending on what you want to call it, but menopause or postmenopause is the life phase that begins one year after the final period. And obviously menopause is going to be 30 or 40 years. So that's not a small life phase. It's quite a significant mm. portion of our lives. Like it's a third at least, and maybe more for most of us. So, and what's, and what's important and that I talk about 
in my work and my book, Hormone Repair Manual, is how important the transition is to it. And also a reassurance to women that once they get there, life should be pretty great. There's a quote in my book, actually, it's from the University of Melbourne, or one of the, uh, yeah, uh, talking about, um, you know, the women they've surveyed in their late 50s, 60s, and beyond report life being pretty fantastic. I don't wait. Yeah. Patients from that part of their life. I'm now a few years past into menopause, graduated into menopause. And yeah, it's all pretty easy usually. And if it's not easy from this point, then that it's because through my lens, it's because the transition didn't quite maybe go as well as it could have. So we can talk about that. Your book looks at the guide to healthy hormones after 40, but most of us don't even realize that we could be in perimenopause from our early 40s. And I know that's really common from from my friends as well. And you've talked about how long perimenopause could last up until that first year after the last period. And But is there an average for any women that we could be expecting? Yeah, I think they say the average is probably four or five years of symptoms, if they're going to be symptoms. And importantly, some people just sail through it with just no dramas at all, hardly notice anything. And so I think we, I always like to give some voice to that part of the experience because otherwise we head into it just pathologizing and thinking it's all bad. But for some people, they really don't notice much. And for them, they should just be allowed to live their lives, not think about it too much actually. But um. Yeah. So for on average, probably four or five years, the key thing, and at least through my lens and drawing from the work of endocrinology professor Geraldine Pryor, who's featured quite prominently in my book, she helped me with the book. She um, She's pretty adamant that symptoms start while periods are still regular. Symptoms can start while periods are still regular. And hormones will still look pretty normal on a blood test. So this is where the confusion comes. And I, there've been countless times with my patients and my followers on social media where they say, you know, I thought it must be perimenopause, but then I went to my doctor and she said, I'm fine. It's not that. It's like, well, there's Mm. no way to really determine that it's not that. I mean, we can talk about assessment and there are ways to determine if it is perimenopause or not, but that that way does not include just a simple blood test or the simple fact that you're still having regular periods. That doesn't rule out perimenopause. So so what are we looking for? Yeah. Well, how many of your audience are um, chart their cycles? <laughs> I've started framing it this way a bit more. And you guys look like you might have some charting people in your audience, maybe. <laughs> so um, I don't know, <laughs> gauging. So if for anyone doing that, it's easy. What starts, what happens is the luteal phase starts to go away. Basically, you start getting shorter luteal phases more cycles where there's no luteal phase at all. Those are called anovulatory cycles. This means that progesterone is going away. And that's the first change that marks the onset of perimenopause, essentially. And of course, obviously, we're talking about women who are cycling naturally, not on the pill, because that mm-hmm. there's no luteal phase on the pill anyway. So um, if hopefully your listeners know what I mean by luteal phase, I'm sure they a lot of sounds like they probably do. Like that's the, you know, the the part of the cycle after ovulation where the ovary forms this little temporary gland that makes progesterone. And that just starts to not happen as well. And that is part of the process. It's nothing women are doing wrong. It's just progesterone was always hard to make, even when we were young. And it's just the hormone that waves goodbye first, basically. And at the same time, partly related to that, at the same time that starts happening less significantly less progesterone estrogen starts kind of going a little crazy, like up and down. Mm. I call it the the perimenopausal hormonal roller coaster. So you get these spikes up to three times more estrogen than we ever had in our cycles before. It's not as high as pregnancy estradiol, but it's, you know, from a cycling perspective, it's quite a bit higher and then dropping down again. Yeah. So that's the beginning of it. And so you can see it on charting very clearly. You cannot see it on blood tests because it's hard to get a snapshot of what estrogen and progesterone are doing. I mean, you might see progesterone there on, you know, day 24 or something, but what does that really mean if you're only having a seven-day luteal phase, right? You're just not getting the full dose of what's supposed to be happening. And then Professor Pryor, Jalen Pryor, who I mentioned, she recommends assessment by symptoms. So I can 
talk about that? Yes, please do. Can I just um, point out, so you have a really good graph in your book. I think it's also on your website that for me, that really put it, really helped me understand what was happening because a lot of us think that it's a decline in estrogen because you then have a lack of, a lack in quotes of estrogen in menopause. So a lot of women think that that is what's happening when it's actually, as you said, the opposite to some degree, because you're having these huge surges of it and it's the progesterone that's kind of tailing off. So I just wanted to kind of mention the graph. We can put that in your show notes or put a link to it. That's Professor Pryor's graph that I, that I modified, you know, used with her permission. So to be clear, estrogen does eventually go too. Mm. So the thing about perimenopause, and I've started talking about it more this way, it's quite a diverse landscape. So in the early years, it's big mountains of estrogen, spikes of estrogen, and then crashing down again, progesterone just quietly leaving the space. But then over time, like as you progress through the years, and especially once periods start to become further and further apart, or you know, especially when you're in the waiting room, waiting for your to know if that was your last period, estrogen is low then. So hmm. yeah, it's it's both. Estrogen is initially high, but then low. And then of course, both hormones just stay low into menopause or postmenopause, all those decades. That's a normal state and not a deficiency, which I just feel is always worth stating quite clearly. And it's not, to be clear, it's not like we, we don't lose all of our estrogen. We lose this, most of our progesterone. Um, The ovaries don't make any progesterone anymore after menopause, but um, the nervous system always makes this little kind of smattering of uh, progesterone, but the ovaries do still continue to make some estrogen, nowhere near the amounts we made in a your reproductive cycle, but about 10% of what we used to make. Plus every cell in the body, including brain cells, importantly, makes their own estradiol. If everything's working well and they're healthy, they just, they just make, excuse me, they just make as much as they need, which is quite nice. Actually, that's, that's what men and children do too, actually, because everybody needs, estradiol is actually a, a crucial essential hormone. So, um, we all have a way of making it. So then the question is, and there's lots of debate about, is that enough? You know, for some women, is that going to be enough or do you need to supplement it? We can get into that later. Um, but first I'll talk about the yeah, assessment of perimenopause if you want. Mm, yes, please. We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength, and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping, and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially, and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the global lactation clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. So the key is context, right? So these are, I'm going to list nine symptoms if I can remember them all. Um, that, that, you know, this is evening time for me. So my brain is starting to... <laughs> Feel free to, to go and get your I book. I can probably Rachel help you out with symptoms. Yeah, well, we'll... T- We'll do it together. We'll do it as a group here. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do it as a group. But um, it's context dependent. So obviously it would be in a midlife woman, which is midlife is 37 plus. No one likes to hear that is midlife. Yeah, It's quite funny. I remember my mom making a joke years ago, like people think they're not midlife till they're like 50, but like, do you think you're going to live to 100? Because I mean, for most people, if you live to 75 or 80, then you know, 35 or 
40 is midlife technically, but um, yeah. yeah. So in a midlife woman um, and other explanations for those symptoms have been ruled out. So what I see happening a little bit, which I want to push back on out there kind of in the you know social media world is, you know, every single symptom that might arise in our forties being attributed to perimenopause. It, it doesn't, it, no, I, yeah, I think, it feels like I don't that. think that's, I don't think that's helping anything actually. I think because we kind of have other things going on and there are other things that are just happening with age. And so if you start putting too many things under the perimenopause banner, it just doesn't mean anything anymore. I mm. think it's very confusing. And then you start trying to treat those symptoms with perimenopause treatments, that's not going to work because the symptoms are caused by something else. So, and that would be the, so the symptoms that Geraldine Pryor designates as signs and symptoms all relate to that, what I described earlier with the shortening luteal phases and the loss of progesterone. Um, so the first thing would be actually a shortening of cycles. So, I mean, she does talk about the cycle still being regular, but generally into our 40s, we will start generally start having periods coming closer and closer together. So we might go from like a 29 day cycle to a 26 day cycle. And then maybe like have a 21 day cycle and then a 24 day cycle. And some of those are probably even, they're still ovulatory cycles. Some of them might be anovulatory. And conversely, young women, like teenagers have 45 day cycles. That's their, yeah, just takes, it's all to do with, um, it's really to do with FSH from the brain. So when the, um, like in our 40s, the brain is very excited about getting those follicles to the finish line and they get there pretty much more quickly than they used to. <laughs> yeah, they're just all pumping, which is why there can be a little surge in fertility actually during this early stages, right? Because there's a lot of follicle stimulation happening. You just have to have enough progesterone to like, you know, hold it all and and have a successful mm. pregnancy. But yeah. that's one of the things too I've realized women need to hear is those early, that be, those, that beginning of perimenopause, you could still become pregnant. So, I mean, at a certain point, you won't be able to, but like mm. just, you know, designating or feeling like you know, this could be some of the early signs of perimenopause doesn't have to be like a, you know, tragic knife in the heart, you know, end of fertility. Like it, it is still possible. There's still some fertility possible there. Um, right. So shortening cycles, heavier periods for a lot of women, not everyone, but some women like incredibly heavy periods sometimes. If anyone mm. listening knows what I'm talking about, like this mm. is like where you, you know, bleed through your clothes and just never imagined it could be like that. Um, then breast. Okay. So I'm going to count. So <laughs> I'm doing, this is, we've got nine <laughs> symptoms, shortening cycles, heavier periods they're probably not in the right order as in the book, um, breast pain or tenderness. And a lot of that is the high estrogen, low progesterone. It all totally makes sense. Um, increased tendency to period pain, potentially. You can also get flaring up of underlying like endometriosis or adenomyosis. Um, increased um, premenstrual mood symptoms. And in fact, a tendency to premenstrual mood symptoms earlier in life can increase the life. Makes sense, right? Like they're going to be more yeah, likely to happen then. Um, sleep disturbance is that's one of the ones. That's the one that women seek help for. That's the one that's just like you can't deal with that without getting some help. It, it, especially if it goes on for a while. Um, night sweats, weight gain, which no one really likes to hear, but it is part of it. <laughs> Once I've got eight, there's a ninth <laughs> one there somewhere. Um, Oh, migraines. Yes, good. I got it. Increased frequency of migraines or um, maybe someone maybe had migraines. A common situation. I just had a patient today, actually. I was talking to her. She had migraines as a teenager. Mm. Then she had migraines on the pill. And then none at all in her late 20s, 30s. Great through her pregnancies. Nothing at all. And then 42 you know, migraines, mm -hmm. mid-cycle migraines. This is premenstrual migraines. This is pretty classic. Um, and that's from, that's both, the migraines are both from losing progesterone, which normally has a kind of anti-migraine effect and from the up, the extreme ups and downs of estrogen, because dropping estrogen definitely can trigger migraine. So, yeah. So then Professor Parr says three of any of the, three of those nine in a midlife woman and other explanations have been ruled out. And then it's, she says you're in the, that's like likely to be perimenopause.
right, then I'm definitely in it. Thank you. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. It's hit. I'm definitely, there's no excuses now. I know. Right. (laughs) Welcome to the club. I'm 44. So, I mean, it's to be expected. Yeah. So, yeah. You're just right on time. That's perfectly normal. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm fitting in with the normal. That's okay with me. Yeah. Quite happy to be going through this. And yeah, it's um, almost median, actually. That would be like right in the middle of the bell curve. You're, yeah. Oh, lovely. I don't think I've ever been in the middle of the bell curve for much. So that's <laughs> quite good. Thank you. Yeah. Do you know what I found a symptom? I don't know whether it's kind of, whether it's linked to, it might be one of those things that's nothing to do with perimenopause. And that's a reduced capacity to deal with stress. Yeah. So there's like this, you know, you previously you can count you just look back on your life and go I don't know how I did all of that stuff all at the same yeah. time with mm. that happening and then suddenly you couldn't actually do it yes and actually I think that technically should be on Geraldine's list that's you know maybe part of the um but yeah there's a cognitive there's a reduced ability to cope with stress um for me it was um like not wanting to drive complicated places like uh, you know I was always I remember my friend saying to me that I was like the most fearless driver he'd ever met and like suddenly then at 45 I'm like you know I think I'm gonna avoid (laughs) I'm gonna avoid that like you know scary right turn I'm gonna go a different way and yeah unfortunately that is that's um improved again so I like just to say you know emphasize um the temporary nature of this for most Mm. of us yeah you might go through a time when you're like I'm not you know, dealing with that work stress as well, or I've, you know, I'm, um, ap- you know, nervous or apprehensive about certain things and then it um, improves again. So, yeah, I think that's really important yeah. to stress because it can feel like yeah. it's, I think when you're in your late thirties as well, if, if, you know, we've got listeners that are maybe are having babies or they've, they've sort of stopped having babies, whether they're midwives or they're women listening, it can feel like this is, for some, it's like, God, this is the death sentence of like, this is the end of times and I'm just going into it. And I think there's a lot on social media that is quite frightening. Or It's very negative. Mm. I don't know why it took such a dark turn on social media. It changed from awareness raising mm. and just, you know, a little bit of reality based. Let's just, you know, be, talk about what's happening to just doom and gloom and yeah i don't that was not the right turn for things to take it's yeah it doesn't have to be like that no which is interesting because for me when i when i realized what was happening it was actually really positive because prior to that if you don't know that's what it is you think i'm literally going mad right and i'm falling apart and then when you go oh no hang on this is just a normal process and it is going to end it's not forever You know, that's helped. Then you start to, okay, well, how can I manage the symptoms while I'm journeying Mm -hmm. through this bit? The analogy I use or the metaphor I use in hormone repair manual is a software update, right? Like, so when the computer, when your computer's updating or your phone is updating, it's like, it's doing its thing. It's going to be a little glitchy. You know, actually, it's not the best metaphor because you can't actually use your computer when it's doing that. But (laughs) let's say, you know, something, an update's happening in the background and you're just like, just let it, you know, keep it plugged in. You know, let it do its thing. And then when you come out the other side, it's like, oh, it's working better than before. So yeah, it's it's there's reason to hope. And I guess the other way to frame it is it is a window, it's an important I talk about in the book about being a tipping point. It's a window of opportunity for mm. to, to be as healthy as possible. This and I, I just really can't emphasize this enough. If I say to my patients and have for years, if there was ever a time to you know eat well and make time for sleep and do your yoga or walking or like whatever it is that you you know that you need to do and maybe even dial back on work just temporarily not like not completely but like maybe just put some boundaries around some of it and just because you you need this time and if to look after yourself and navigate this software update and then yeah, after that you'll pro- you'll have this surge in energy where you can go back to your busy ways if if you want to and you know get a lot more done again. Oh. But yeah, no, or some people some people decide not to go back to their super busy ways ever. But the other thing during this time, it's I'm sure it'll come up when we talk about you know how to feel better. But I just at this outset, I just want to mention this is the time to quit alcohol, it, even temporarily. 
it it's it's absolutely universal. I have yet to hear one dissenting voice on this. Ever even reluctant patients tell me it's like yeah that that's true. This during these, especially if you get deeper into perimenopause, and um, that's when I'll just say to people like you you might find if you can just completely take a break from alcohol for a few months, you might find your sleep and your you know ability to cope with stress and everything just improves you know, without doing too much else complicated so yeah. which is difficult because a lot of people will drink to relax because they yeah, because of the symptoms so and then i know it does yeah. the opposite please tell us about that because you know well it just it's because the brain is rewiring and re the nervous system is recalibrating the nervous system is dealing with um quite different levels of neurotransmitters and so it's just yeah, alcohol just erodes that. I was, alcohol, as a clinician, I view alcohol as quite corrosive in a way that few other substances are. It, it just doesn't, it's just not good for the brain. And also, if nothing else, two other things about alcohol, it, um, well, it spikes up estrogen even more than it is. So it's going to like push it even higher on the roller coaster. By spiking up estrogen, it's a breast cancer risk. So alcohol is a known breast cancer risk. It's actually one yeah. of the top ones. It's the one that's most researched and most clearly established in the science. Even moderate alcohol intake is a risk. And the, the the statistics, the way the numbers kind of crunch, you know, look these days, it looks like even moderate alcohol intake, like even, you know, one drink a day or five or six drinks in a week, that kind of thing is a higher, carries a higher breast cancer risk than estrogen therapy, you know, modern menopausal therapy. So it kind of puts things in perspective, right? Ooh, definitely. Um, Yeah. And also alcohol, even small amounts, like even that kind of moderate amount will um, disrupt circadian rhythm. And that's one of the other things that is affected by perimenopause is we just Mm -hmm. don't have our circadian rhythm gets a little less robust. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, internal body clock that this is what people might notice. Certainly I noticed in my forties, jet lag was just took a little bit longer to get over, you know, just your, your brain is just, it just needs a bit more time to get that happening. Mm-hmm. And so supporting circadian rhythm is actually also a really good way to feel better during this time. It's another tip is one of the best ways to do that. It sounds so boring, but get outside in the morning. Like even if you've got a young baby or like whatever, even just walk outside, like even just walk outside with your coffee, even just 15 minutes in this direct bright outside light in the morning will help your brain figure out yeah, what your body clock is supposed to be doing. And that can translate into better sleep mm-hmm. the next night, especially over time if you keep doing that. So can I ask you a question then? Because obviously I'm in coming into midwinter. Yes. Behind yes. me actually is my little like sun lamp. Sun. Yeah. Uh, not not a sun tanning lamp, but you know, to give me some more lux. Totally. Does yeah. that because I do walk outside and I actually do yeah. exactly what you say. I take my coffee, I walk out yeah. and try and find where there's a light and like yeah. have my eyes in it. But yeah, there is a hell of a lot of fog and cloud right now where I am, and yeah. there's not a lot of sunshine. Does the light do the same thing if I put that on every morning? Yeah, good question. Well, actually, this cloud, there's still quite a lot of light outside, even under cloud, interestingly, yeah. like okay. way more than inside. So it's still worth going outside on a cloudy day, even a cloudy winter day. So I know what this is like. So I'm Canadian. So I've certainly been in yeah dark winters before. Yep. And last time I was in Canada at this time of year, I... Yeah, I wasn't used to it because I've been living in Australia and New Zealand where the days are a little, even winter days are a little longer than Yeah, I was in Australia for 11 years, so I missed that, (laughs) feeling it. Yeah, the light. So the problem with, I mean, it will, like in Canada, you know, middle of December, it'll get late at like 9 a.m. But that's, Mm -hmm. for me, that felt a little too late. Like, so I I wanted, it's like I craved the light earlier. So yeah, I think using one of those Hilux lamps, just like read a book or have your coffee sitting under the lamp. I don't think it's as good as outside, but it's better. Um, Mm -hmm. And at least you're getting the signal earlier in the day, like, you know, whatever, seven or eight, you know, 7 a.m. anyway, around the time you probably, most people need it, depending on their chronotype or, you know, body clock. Because some people are more, if you're an early bird type, which a lot of us are as we move into our 40s and 50s, yeah, you need the light pretty early. Um, Yeah, so. And then I've got one more question on that. That's brilliant. But because (laughs) our audience often work shifts, you know, we're working 
not in accordance with our circadian rhythm. This might be completely out of your scope, Lara, but no, it's not. I just wrote a big section about this in my new book, which is coming, which I can talk about. Um, Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I'll just touch on this. So night shifts, tricky, 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 but nurses and midwives, you know, yes, you know, serve the world and we need that. So obviously it has to be done. Um, Doctors and people working shifts. Um, Right. So the strategy I've written into the book, what I've, it's been a while since I've, I have done some night shifts as well. So I can kind of relate a little bit. It's been a long time though. Um, What, what you want to do is try to, obviously you have to sleep during the day, but you don't want to flip your circadian rhythm. So you do, especially unless, I mean, the, the unfortunate would be someone who's like permanent nights. That's quite a different situation, but, but we're, we're talking about people who just have to do some night shifts, some shift work. We're um, diurnal animals. We're not nocturnal at all. So we do not want to flip our rhythm. Um, so my understanding of the current research is you want to try to keep it, even though you have to sleep during the day, you still keep your light exposure and your meals. Um as a daytime creature, right? So you, that, that would mean, um, so how to, how to explain. So like, if, if you have to work through the night, you don't want to, you want eat enough to get through whatever you have to do, but like, don't have big meals through the night. Cause that's, t- that's telling your body it's daytime. Cause that's one of the signals. Also, obviously you have to work in whatever light you're in, but I think you still want to, um, get some daytime. You don't want to like block the light during the day when you're supposed to, I mean, you can, you know, block it enough to be able to sleep, but still expose yourself to some daylight during the right time. So I hope that I've written a little bit more about it in my new book about metabolic health, which is coming out in, I hope in May, 2024. And yeah, so maybe your, some of your listeners might have some other tips for night shifts. It's the, the fact is it's just a tough, we're working against our biology with mm-hmm. it. It's not ideal. And it's, so it, these are all just ways to mitigate the harm basically from that mm. um yeah and hopefully if it's not a permanent or you know long-term thing it's yeah do you have any other thoughts or questions or any tips uh for people no, it's just, i was just i was just thinking it's definitely not a good idea and i will not name names um but i do know a couple of people who would go home from a night shift and have a couple of glasses of wine and then Ooh. sleep <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, and I get it because they're trying to go to sleep, right? But that's, yeah, yeah, that's not gonna. Oh, and the other thing, you can use melatonin to, um, to try, but the way you use melatonin is in the prop, like in the night, like not the night you're working, but like when you come off nights and you're trying to get back onto the normal, that's when you take it like on your nights off to try to Mm. cement the, keep the rhythm. And yeah, you know, alcohol would not help. Like, I mean, the, I guess <laughs> other sleeping, there might be some other sort of sleeping tips that can, you know, magnesium glycine is one of my favorite things for, you know, soothing sleep. Yeah. I always found when I came home, I would have to, it's like what really changed, someone had given me the tip was that I would come home and then try and go straight to sleep. And it, I would wake up always at midday. So I'd probably right. sleep from seven to midday, maybe or seven thirty. Um, and then someone said to me, "What would you do if you'd come home from work? Would you go immediately to bed?" Right. And I was like, "No, actually, I just kind of chill myself Wind out down. and let the day go yeah. through. Maybe eat, yeah. Maybe watch a bit of TV, yeah. Or just some downtime. And I started doing that. And I would probably have, you know, um, a herbal tea, maybe a small yeah. breakfast." And then I would probably go to bed maybe around 9, 30, 10. So like the equivalent yeah. of when I was going to bed at night. And then I was yeah. finding that I was sleeping until about five mm. um, and having longer sleeps. But also when you mentioned yeah. the smaller meals overnight, I couldn't eat. I would feel really sick over the night. During shift. the night. So I'd just have something really little. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. If you ate too much before you tried to have your day sleep. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be individual. I mean, at the same time, you First, from a circadian rhythm perspective, you're probably still trying to get most of your calories into those daylight hours. But um, yeah, it's going to. I'd have a breakfast before I went to sleep, and then I'd have a dinner before I went to work. But during the work time at maybe three a.m., I just eat a little thing that would just keep me going. Not like a big meal. No, you don't want to eat meals overnight. Yeah. Goodness, I used to have um, when I was working in the hospital on birth suite. (laughs) You would be eating 
lollies, like sweets, most of the night. And then someone would go out and bring back a whole load of chips. So hot chips for Australians, like hot potatoes, eat those. And you'd be eating tea and toast. (laughs) Just be carb loading all night shift. Go home, take the kids to school, crash out, get up, do it again. Like, see, this is what I mean. I couldn't have done that in my 40s. (laughs) It's tough. But yeah, just trying to keep your nervous system going through the yeah, through the night. Another thing I wanted to mention is how what changes do you need to make to exercise? Because I have heard when I was going through perimenopause, I was told to stop running. Because I was doing quite a bit of running. I was told to stop running because it's just pushing cortisol and instead to shift to walking and less intense. I think there's something in that. I think at the end of the day, the consensus is people just need to do what they enjoy like they still I don't think we have to give up the type of movement that we enjoy um from a hormonal perspective probably yeah that combination of you know gentler not not super gentle but like you know walking mm-hmm. what they call zone one exercise and then some strength building muscle that's yeah. a good combo for not just perimenopause but being 40 and 40 plus um so in terms of that stress hormone, yes, because it's already a time of higher stress hormones as the uh, nervous system recalibrates. So, and the truth is, I mean, I think intense exercise is going to boost cortisol and adrenaline in, in some people more than others. So it sort of depends, I think, on the individual, the body type, you know, the time of day the exercise is done and yeah, lots of things like that. Like speaking of chrono, I do talk about chronotype a little bit in my new metabolic mm-hmm. health book. So chronotype is, I mentioned it a few minutes ago, like, you know, morning or early birds versus night owls. Like there is, there is a natural variation of a, a healthy variation of about up to three hours between individuals. And so just an example in terms of the cortisol, if a night owl tries to do super intense exercise, even like running in the morning, that's going to generate more cortisol than it would in an early bird who's like mm. that's their you know nervous system is ready for that and primed for that and one thing that appears to be the case is that a lot of the you know fitness influencers out there are these like wiry body type early birds mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they're doing their super early like you know high intensive exercise and that is not the right thing for every buddy for sure depending on mm. their chronotype and their age and yeah so thank you that is definitely good to know it makes it'll make a lot of us feel better <laughs> yeah so already just as a review i've mentioned the be take a good hard look at alcohol and probably mm. say goodbye to it for a while at least um knowing that you can you know as i said my some of my patients is like when you're 56 and you know traveling in italy and you could have that glass of wine you know you can go back i sort of imagine like a future date when you could have just some nice drink that okay that makes me so feel better like, yeah it's not that you're banishing it forever although honestly once you start sort of down the path of no alcohol it feels so good that it's kind of reluctant to go back but it won't be like i can just speak from my own so at 48 I would be sitting there thinking, I'd love to have a beer, but then I'll wake up all sweaty. (laughs) And so I could either like, you know, have this beer or I could sleep through the night and not, you know, which would be very pleasant to not wake up all sweaty Mm -hmm. at 4 a.m. So I would often just choose the sleeping through the night. But now at, you know, 54, I can have a beer once or twice in a week and I don't pay that price. So I'm just assuring people that it does improve. Right. So uh, no alcohol. And then we talked about the circadian, supporting your circadian rhythm with whatever that takes. If you work night shifts, that's going to be additionally more challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, You might want to even, I don't know if it's within your realm of possibility to even do fewer night shifts in your 40s, knowing you could maybe come back to them and we could sort of tag team. We could let the women women who are late 40s sort of have a break from night shifts. I don't know if that's possible (laughs) in the professions, you know, do fewer night shifts and then the younger women and the older women take those or people take those um part those shifts um then uh well i talked about in my book quite a lot magnesium so there's some some um nutrients that can really help to stabilize the nervous system so the combination i 
speak about quite a lot is magnesium plus the amino acid taurine. They kind of work together on the GABA system of the brain. And the GABA system is the part that is missing progesterone because progesterone normally has um, a kind of a Valium type GABA. So GABA is the calming neurotransmitter in the brain. And it's a very important neurotransmitter. And so that part is having to get used to having less progesterone. So anything that can support GABA can help. So that would include magnesium, taurine, um, another amino acid called glycine I mentioned for sleep. I like these because they're all quite inexpensive and easy to access and safe. <laughs> so they're you know, good in that way. And these ones that I've just mentioned are also safe during breastfeeding, which is you know quite good. Um, then, I mean, beyond that, there's lots, right? So exercise, moving the body, we've talked about that can be actually really very helpful for the nervous system and for this recalibration process and symptom relief. And then beyond that, you know, some of the herbal medicines that are popular, like probably the most popular is ashwagandha, which is definitely called withania, helps with sleep, helps with, um, coping with stress, sort of, a you know, having a better, easier, better stress response system. And then we get kind of get into the territory of, you know, whether women want to take hormone therapy of some kind or not. Um, should we touch on that a bit? Yeah. Oh, yes. yes, please. One thing, so the pill, so I'll just say categorically, I think perimenopause is not a great time to take the pill. I mean, never, through my lens, never is really a great mm. time. But mm. I would say the two times to really not take it would be teenage years, especially the young teen years, because they're maturing their menstrual cycle. And the brain is, these are both times of change, right? So the brain mm -hmm. is changing. And then perimenopause, just because it doesn't work as well as some of the other things we're about to talk about. And I just feel like, so keep in mind the pill, especially the combined methods, like combined estrogen methods of well, the pill or, you know, um, like a, a ring or a, a patch, um, that kind of combined method, it switches off the ovaries. So I kind of feel like you're about to, your ovaries are about to switch off anyway. I sort of feel like you might as well get the benefit of them for, that's why I have a chapter in my book called Cycle While You Can. Like, let them do what they're going to do for mm. the, you know, these next seven or eight years. Um, and so, but as progesterone falls away, I would argue there can be a place for taking progesterone. And we talk about it quite a lot in Hormone Repair Manual. This is the natural progesterone. Um, for years, for decades, it was available only from naturopathic doctors or integrative doctors. Um, since about 2016 in Australia, I don't know, in Europe, in Europe much longer actually, but it's mm. certainly in Australia, it was reasonably recent. It became available mainstream. So in Australia, it's Prometrium. In it has different brand names. Other some countries in the UK, it's Eutrogestin, and it is body identical progesterone. And the reason it's become mainstream is because kind of what people were saying all along. But um, it's safer. It's safer for breasts. So progestins, the kind of synthetic analog versions of progesterone that are actually very very different than progesterone, are all progestins do carry a small breast cancer risk. Um, that includes all types of hormonal birth control, by the way. It's the progestin part that probably carries a slight, not to overstate it, but like, you know, a slight risk. Um, whereas progesterone seems to not carry that risk, which is quite, which is why it's entered the mainstream as the main progesterone type of hormone therapy, mainly, mainly as a companion for estrogen. That's kind of how it's been presented or brought in, but you can totally, you can just take it on its own. And especially in these earlier high estrogen, low progesterone phases of perimenopause, taking progesterone on its own makes a lot of sense logically, biologically, and clinically, it seems to really work well. So Professor Pryor has, who I mentioned a few times, has been an advocate of, advocate of that for decades, like literally like four decades. And she um, has been studying it. She, her she's released recently at um, the results of a clinical trial using progesterone alone for night sweats and sleep disturbance um, of perimenopause. So that's kind of exciting that that's now in mm. the scientific literature. And the other main advantage, the other sort of role for progesterone, in, especially in these earlier 
high estrogen years of perimenopause is to lighten flow because this is maybe one of the things, maybe Katie, this is what I said I'd come back to is the heavy period, the crazy Mm -hmm. heavy periods of perimenopause. So a lot of women need something and um, this, that something has usually been progestins that are on offer and mm. progesterone can fill that role. It can. And you do just, you just take more of it and um, then you would progestin. You need to take it at bedtime really because it's quite tranquilizing or sedating. That's its big GABA effect. Mm. And so anyone who's tried to take it during the day will end up feeling really groggy and weird. But for most women it feels very good. So you can lighten your flow plus get the neurological side benefits of it, helping with sleep, helping with ability to cope with stress. I'll just acknowledge there are a few women who do not feel good on oral progesterone in terms of mood. They get kind of a paradoxical anxiety reaction. I'm just, I always say that because I know there's going to be someone in your audience who's experienced that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just well, that. I, yeah. I use progesterone progesterone bioidentical progesterone yes and when i started using it i used it orally and i yes. found i mean it knocked me out sleep wise to the point yeah. where i was groggy the next morning for most of yeah. the day but i also felt that i started to feel kind of really low mood yeah so what i did was i started yeah. taking it vaginally instead yeah, I know that's kind of yeah. off label. I'm not saying anybody should do this. Um, no, it's a, and that it's a worked, yeah. and it's and now can use it without the kind of other effects. I yeah. still sleep really well, but I haven't got that, you know, groggy. Yep, definitely, Rachel. It's good to share that story. That is a kind of one of the what's the word like troubleshooting strategies that a lot of doctors recommend if the oral progesterone is having sort of negative mood effects. You can also adjust the dose too, or the timing or the different things, but yes, switching to vaginal application. And the reason that's different is that um, vaginal absorption, less of it goes through the liver. So it's actually in the liver that the um, GABA metabolite is from progesterone is made. And, but for women who are taking, um, progesterone for migraines or for sleep. Actually, sometimes you, you want that GABA metabolite. So in mm. your case, no, like if, if it's causing side effects, then no. But like for people, it's more tranquilizing, it's more sedating taken orally, which is for some women is what they want or, you know, it feels mm. good. So yeah, it's good. Thanks for sharing that story. Yeah. And then at some point in the journey through perimenopause, as periods become further and further apart, and then you're in the waiting room and waiting to get a period there, can be a place for estrogen therapy potentially. I mean, you probably know the pendulum's been swinging. It was 25 years ago when I started practicing as a naturopathic doctor. It was it was like everyone should be on it to prevent heart disease. You know, estrogen therapy is an absolute must for everyone. It's like it was like that. And then, you know, it's the pendulum swung too far. I I would say there was like then like a lot of fear around it. Um, and as incidentally, a lot of the side effects of a lot of the risks that they were picked up on in the women's health initiative study on the traditional hormone replacement therapy that they studied. A lot of that risk was from the progestin, not the estrogen, which is actually super interesting. And then, and now it's kind of swinging back Mm -hmm. and a lot more people are a lot more comfortable taking estrogen, which I think is good, but it doesn't mean that every single person needs to take it, right? Like there still, there still has to be, this is why I was so adamant at the beginning that like the low, not zero, but the low low estrogen of menopause, the 30 to 40 years of menopause, post-menopause is technically normal. It's it's mm-hmm. not a deficiency. And so it's not something we, um, although there, there can be a role and there's always little caveats and nuances. This is quite a, you know, lots of twists and turns with this, this discussion, but um, there's a strong case to be made for vaginal estrogen, especially kind of later, you know, into menopause and as the years go by, because if someone starts to experience atrophy and discomfort, and it's not just like painful sex, like it's, you know, bladder problems and th- that responds incredibly well to vaginal estrogen. And it, I think honestly, in that case, the vaginal estrogen is a lifesaver. And so I don't want women to be afraid of that or avoiding that for if they if it could help them there are also natural treatments that can help with that but i usually for my patients i suggest they use it in conjunction with some Mm. vaginal estrogen and it's even safe vaginal estrogen is even safe um with a personal history of breast cancer that's actually become quite 
known now. I mean, obviously check with your doctor, everyone, anyone listening, but most doctors now kind of know about that, that it's safe, which is, yeah, good news. Very mm. good. Mm. Although I think a lot of GPs are still pretty, um, <laughs> they've got a lot on their plate and that's, and menopause is not something that they're necessarily familiar with. I actually spoke to my GP last time I saw her and she told me that um, first, First time she'd met me, I intimidated her. <laughs> she was all nice about it. She said, yeah. because I came. <laughs> and I just sat down and said, okay, this is what's happening. I'm in perimenopause, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I just basically told yeah. her exactly what I wanted her to prescribe me, the dosage, yeah. everything. <laughs> and she yeah. said that she found that intimidating. But then since then, you know, she's gone and researched and she's actually in perimenopause and, yeah. and looking at it now. But it was it was quite funny because I didn't know she was intimidated at the time. I just I was just yeah. like, right, this is what I need. <laughs> it is true. I think um, one of the, the pieces of advice I've got in my new book. I don't know if I put it in hormone repair manual, but when talking to one's GP, mm. um, I think I think a good strategy can be like if it if it seems to be if it seems like they do seem overwhelmed by the information or just need some time to like take it in. Sometimes I suggest people just say to the GP, look why don't you, why don't I leave that with you and like come back in a week for another appointment and you can, you know, think about it and then we can have a second conversation. So they're not like, so no, I wanted it now <laughs> in that moment. Yeah. Fair enough. But like, it's because a lot of doctors, especially, I think a lot of doctors are really quite interested or open if they yeah have a chance yeah. to think about yeah, it. And she just um, said she knew nothing about menopause. She yeah. said I had to go and Google things. Um, and yeah. that's actually in your book, you've got quite a lot of those kind of conversations and kind of yeah. um, um, explanation about how you could approach things with your GP, which yeah. is really good. Mm, what we need. Yeah, I hope it's helpful. Yeah. Mm. And I think, yeah, and just for everyone listening, like, because because there is a lot with perimenopause and it is true that GPs you know, don't have a lot of time in their consults. So I think it's just, a, also, I guess often I'll say, I'll try to, um, so just like keep it as simple as possible, like maybe focus on a couple symptoms at a time. Um, and for what it's worth, in terms of prescribing, like accessing progesterone, I think I said this earlier, but even if in the back of your mind, even if you want some progesterone for, you know, migraines or sleep or all these other things we've been talking about, if you really, if you also have heavy periods, I would start with that, with the doctor. Like I would start, you know, say, I've got these heavy periods. I need, I think, I think we should speak about heavy periods a little bit more too. Like, so I need, I really need something for this. Like my iron is low. Make sure you get your iron tested. And then that's an opportunity to say, look, could I, like, I know you want to give me this, the pill or a progestin, but could I try Prometria for yeah. like progesterone for heavy periods? Because Professor Geraldine Pryor has this page on her website that for written for doctors explaining how, you know, prometrium can be prescribed to lighten flow and just be like, you know, I understand that it's safer for breasts than a progestin. And I would like to try that for a few months to see if it can lighten my flow. And then knowing in the back of your brain, you actually, I'm also probably going to get some sleep benefits and migraine benefits from it, but yeah. the doctor doesn't have to, you know, talk through everything. It can just sort of be prescribed for one symptom. I don't know if that's helpful, but I just, I've heard mm. from doctors that yeah they've they're busy they it's nice to deal with kind of one thing at a time sometimes hmm. um, i think that's great yeah don't but, intimidate the gp <laughs> yeah don't intimidate <laughs> anyone rachel no. <laughs> so just i'll say a couple more words about heavy periods because mm. they read yeah because a lot of women experience that yeah oh yeah it's about i'd say it's about a third of women in their oh, wow. 40s about a third, probably. Maybe. If, and do you yeah, know what? A lot of them are then having hysterectomies. I know. Well, they used to, especially when I started practicing 25 years ago. That was the. So many had had hysterectomies. Now, there's other. Now they have the hormonal IUD, which we'll talk about. Now they have ablation, and there's other things. Um, so there's also a medication called uh, tranexamic acid, which is a blood clotting. It's, it lightens, it um, slows blood flow, basically. And I do talk about it in Hormone Repair Manual. I'd always been kind of neutral about it, but I've just been talking to some doctors recently. Like, I'm sort of convinced it's it's a thing. It, the thing is, you don't take it all the time. You just take it during the flow. So it is kind of an as-needed thing that could be done in con conjunction with some of the other 
natural period lightening strategies that I talk about in Hormone Repair Manual, but it is just a way to get through what's probably going to be a few years of crazy heavy periods. Um, so that's one option. Um, the Prometrium or Eutrogestin I've talked about um, is another way to potentially lighten flow. Then I'll mention the hormonal IUD because it's it is a little different than other types of hormonal birth control. So I mentioned earlier about how combined estrogen methods switch off ovarian function, which I think is mm. a mistake um, mm. because we need our we I, th- I think it's better to let our ovaries do what they need to do. But um, the hormonal IUD does not, especially in a woman in her forties, she's probably still going to cycle and ovulate and everything through that by through that i mean like the small dose of the progestin that's coming out of the iud is mostly working locally preventing pregnancy that way and lightening flow dramatically by thinning the uterine lining some of it does go into the body and reach the breasts which is a little worrying some of it reaches the brain in young women and teenagers i think the hormonal iud will shut down ovulation a lot more of the time because their brain is just sort of more sensitive to that but Again, this comes back to the high level of FSH that we're pumping out in our 40s. I think that a little bit of progestin is not going to stop that from happening. So I hope that's helpful. I don't know. And for what it's worth, you can actually Mm. take, you can take, there's no reason to not, like you can take, you can have a hormonal IUD and also take progesterone for sleep or other symptoms. So that doesn't have to be an either or situation. And certainly you can have a hormonal IUD and um, do a lot of the other natural treatments that I talk about in the book. But to be clear, the hormonal the the progestin in the IUD does affect can affect mood and negatively affect mood in some people. So it's not, and it's not progesterone. There's no mm. even it's called a progesterone IUD. It's not. So yeah, yeah. no, it's really helpful, and that's mm. what I really liked about your book is that it covers all options you know hormonal replacement and kind of natural yeah. approaches lifestyle approaches across the board so you can kind of work your way yeah. through and try what what might work for you there's always a way i think there's mm. always a way to feel better than you do and um yeah it is often is possible to take a little bit from you know a little bit from one pile a little bit from the other like mm. change your diet and you know alcohol and but also maybe Take, for example, the tranexamic acid to lighten your flow. You know, that sort of, yeah, it doesn't have to be all natural or all conventional. Definitely not. <laughs> that's great. That's, I mean, that's yeah. it's so fantastic. And just getting more from the book is really going to be that, like you say, it's a manual that you just want to have on the side and be able to go, <laughs> okay. Well, do you know what I've I've put I can't find my physical version, so I have to go and look in my Kindle version. I don't know where I've put it. I've, I have to do it under your bed. <laughs> Probably yeah. is under my pillow. <laughs> but luckily, I've got the Kindle version as well because I usually have two versions of good books because then I can kind of search on the Kindle for keywords. I know it's nice to. I'm the same. I'm a Kindle user. It's nice to be able to search mm. for things. Yeah. 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 Um, we're kind of coming up to an hour, but I kind of did want to just touch on menopause, which is where we're all right. heading. And it all gets yes. so leave us with some positive kind of <laughs> what happens when we get there. I think I, I'm January. I'll be there if I don't. Bleed. Yeah, congratulations! You, if you if you if you <laughs> right. So if you don't get another period, you're about to graduate yes. to menopause. So I guess the way to positively frame this, and this is in the book, but I'll just explain it again because I'm a before I became a naturopathic doctor, I was an evolutionary biologist. So I see absolutely mm. everything through that lens. It's kind of my spiritual lens, if you will, almost. like. Mm. And when I learned, or I've known for a while, but like looking at it through evolution, it's very interesting. Like we, it seems pretty clear by several lines of evidence that humans evolved to go through menopause. That, and more specifically, we evolved a longer lifespan so, because women in their post-reproductive years are so beneficial to humanity, well, to their groups, to their, Mm. you know, human, their groups of humans that they were with. And so that just means that their long, having long-lived genes was selected for in them because, you know, the longer they live, basically the more descendants they can look after. And I Mm -hmm. I just feel um, it's quite profound, I think. And it just reminds us that 
we're not we're not done like at 50 because yes. like hu- humans have since time immemorial like literally for hundreds of thousands of years because that's how old homo sapiens is we've women in their 50s 60s and 70s have been essential for survival like it's probably not an overstatement to say like the rest of the group would just not survive without them so yeah. that's how important we are and yeah whatever we do with that in the modern age you know era is kind of up to us if we i guess if we some of us you know i don't have grandkids personally but if you do you know that's something great or even just you know there is i don't know because you guys aren't here yet so you can't i can't you can't but soon you will be rachel but like there is this feeling like and most women i've talked to like you something does kick in where you kind of just want to help the world or help you know in my case you know help all the young women to have better periods that's kind of you know one of my call but there is this feeling like yeah i need to make the world better. And I know people have that feeling at every age, so it's not unique to being 50 and beyond. But I think if you just think about it, you look at all the women just that most of us know personally in their 50s and 60s and even 70s, just really getting stuff done, like taking mm-hmm. the reins on things and just organizing mm-hmm. stuff and <laughs> kind of making mm-hmm. it happen. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're here for, I think. And yeah, and it's it really that thinking of it that way banishes completely banishes like the, the other. It, it's so funny because like the as a young woman, probably I feared menopause quite a lot, like the loss of you know what I perceive to be like the loss of sexiness or the loss of beauty or the. It, it, there is true. There is kind of like an invisibility, like you know. Which then, actually, I want to yeah. read this this out of your book. Yeah. This is a highlight from your book. Okay. Yeah. I wanted you to kind of, I love yeah, this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Invisibility and freedom are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. So Explain. <laughs> well, I guess it's kind of what I was saying. Like when I was younger, thinking, oh, that's going to be, oh, it's going to be so sad when I'm like 50 something and people don't, men don't notice me anymore. And you know what? Yeah, it's fine. It's like 100% fine. Like I, I, don't, I don't know how else to explain it, but like you get here, it's like, you certainly don't care that, as I say in the book, like the fact that strange men on the street don't notice me is of like, you know, totally fine. Like no one yeah. wants that anyway. And there's just this kind of, I don't know, like I, there's another, I think part of the book, right? This was like from a conversation I had with my sister when we were both still 40 something. And she's like, look at all these, like on this hiking holiday, walking holiday. And there's like all these women in their kind of fifties and sixties and She's like, look at they're having such a great time. Like there's kind of this secret party going on yeah. of women. <laughs> like, and I think maybe men and young women don't kind of realize it. And I don't know, maybe maybe I'm overstating it, but there's definitely yeah, I don't, I guess to anyone who's afraid of the stigma or afraid afraid of just don't worry about it. Honestly, once you get here, you've just got so many other more important things to do. Like you're really not worried about losing the beauty of your youth it's not i mean i mean not because we can still like and not not to um i don't want to make anyone feel bad if they are still concerned about their appearance and that's fine you know i think i think that's okay too but it's it's just there is this sort of natural not caring as much that can kick Mm. in if you let it and it's yeah quite nice i think that's quite a nice thing to look forward to actually (laughs) yeah i think that's a nice place to end yeah yep bring on january (laughs) yes exactly it's probably when i'm going to release this rachel so (laughs) i graduate i graduated my graduation to menopause was in january as well january Mm -hmm. january 2022 yeah so yeah yeah okay we'll see how long i've got we'll never time will tell we never know but if i'm in the bell curve i could be bang on if you're in the if you're on the bell curve your final you'll achieve menopause at 51 so you're probably yeah. Oh, I've I've got a f- six years ahead of me. Six or oh. seven years. That's about right. Yeah. Right. Okie dokie. Well, we'll see. Well, I'll bring you back in six years, Laura. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Oh, it's been an utter pleasure to have you on, and really just wonderful. And I can't recommend enough to for for people to go and get the book and just to have that by their sides. And also, yeah. very much looking forward to the new book as well. So yes, yeah. We'll pop all the links yeah. below. And um, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
hope you found a few golden nuggety nuggets in the show today. Please don't press pause, but instead scroll on down on your podcast app. Yep, that's it, down there, and pop a review and maybe a few stars to make our eyes twinkle with glee. For more on breastfeeding and lactation content, head on over to my website where my course is. And for courses and books from Rachel, you can find everything in the links below. So all I got to say now is, see you next time. And I can't wait. Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum, totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.